Future Proof Extra from News Talk. Determinism, the idea that things could only have been the way they are, is a contentious subject in many fields, perhaps mainly because it's not possible to go back in time and settle the argument for once and for all. But what if you could, in fact, replay something like evolution? Would life turn out exactly the same way as it did the first time around? Batul Kajar is an astrobiologist at the University of Arizona and head of the Kajar Lab. She joins us now. Hi, Batul. Hi. You deal in ancient DNA. Can you tell us what that is? Um, I use a, a combination of tools that span around computers and bioinformatics and statistics and synthetic biology and predict the sequences of ancient DNA in the lab. Uh, and then I resurrect them and I bring them back to life in a way to study the properties of these ancient DNA molecules. How do you know what ancient DNA looks like if it's ancient? That's a good question. We have uh, tools that we can use. Uh, in, in some ways, we have access to artifacts of evolutionary history uh, using um, the genomic sequences of living organisms. So what do you mean? You look for common genes across uh, different spectra of of living things? Exactly. So we we look for um, evolutionary biologists been using inferences of gene sequences in order to understand the relationship between organisms for a really long time. But now we can go a step further and not only look at the relationship between organisms, but look at the sequence that may have been once the shared DNA uh, between the organisms, basically, that maybe once lived on our planet. So, so I guess the inference is that if you have a, a string of, of those GATC letters that make up our genetic code, and that, that gene or that, that um, a part of a gene is present in all living things, then it must be very, very old. And, and that's uh, essentially how you're identifying ancient DNA? Yes, so you and I share some DNA, we have the same DNA, but you and I also share some of the genes that are common uh, with, say, a plant or a crocodile. And, um, and so that, that, that crocodile and I have a gene that's common that once lived in an organism uh, that was our ancestor. So we are trying to access to that ancestral DNA using the method called phylogenetics and in particular ancestral sequence reconstruction and try to access to that DNA sequence first. And we use uh, mathematical models and predict. uh, So if I have an A and if, if this other organism has an A in the same DNA, then our ancestor had an A on that site, for example. Right. So... One by one, we thread the uh, and predict the DNA sequence of whichever DNA we're interested in. And presumably, these sequences are the ones that, again, are present in uh, most of living organisms because we want to go back to the past. As, we want to go back in the past as, as past as possible, basically. And, and how far back do you think you can go? Is it possible to measure that? For depending on the gene and the, and the question, so uh, we think that life is as old as 3.8 billion years old. So, and we when we think that certain um, certain proteins, certain DNA sequences existed in first life, for example, the ribosome, 
uh, you can imagine ribosome as an information processing center. It's almost like a computer uh, processing center that exists in all living organisms. So we think that the first life on this planet also contained a ribosome. Therefore, if you resurrect a DNA molecule that is present in ribosome today uh, and access the past of this, we predict that that will be as old as life itself. And so therefore you can go as old as 3.8 billion years old. So what's the plan? Because you're, you're, you say you want to look at the earliest cells and see, see what happens when you begin evolution again. I mean, if you take um, these ancient genes and, and put them back in very basic organisms, is, is that the plan? And, and how far into evolution can you really get, considering, as you mentioned, evolution is 3.8 billion years old? So we have access to artifacts of evolutionary history, such as the fossil record, and as I mentioned, the genomic sequences of living organisms. But at the same time, we have limited means with which to infer the exact evolutionary events that occurred to produce today's living world. And that's an intriguing question for me. And another question... What do, what do you mean to, by that? Do you mean the environment that existed at the time to put environmental pressures on the, the organisms to change and adapt? I'm, I'm specifically referring to the historical limitation that uh, may have given, may get, is due to the evolutionary events that produced our life today. So how much did past impact life we see around us? How much the evolutionary paths of organisms um, are dominated um, through ex- ex- internal and external controlled processes? For example, is, is life random, re- really? And whether uh, if we subject different outcomes, uh, would we basically uh, end up with different outcomes if we repeated life hmm. under identical conditions? Or is life controlled uh, in a very tight fashion so that if we repeat life, we end up with the same outcome over and over again? I call this life as a factory, the controlled process, or life as a casino parlor, that life is completely random. So I, I want to understand exactly this, that would we even be here if we repeated evolution? And that's an interesting question for me, because ultimately we want to find life elsewhere in the universe. And we want to understand how much that life will resemble us. Hmm. So these old molecules, these old genes that you're, you're um, then putting into bacteria, what, what has um, been the result of this work? What have you found? So this was the first attempt, and we focused on the um, ribosomal genes. And what we found is that when uh, we insert a 700 million-year-old, and I uh, want to remind you that this was rather a younger gene, 700 million years old, for this particular system, given that this is a really old um, 3.6 billion-year-old mechanism. Mm. Uh, But we... Uh, observed is that the organism did not uh, function very well. Nevertheless, it, it survived, but it wasn't very happy, if I may, when we inserted the um, 700 million year old gene inside its genome and in a way forced it to survive with this ancient component. So you may think of this as a bacterial Jurassic Park experiment where we bring old molecules back to the future, 
But in a way, it's a bit different than that because we are not resurrecting the whole bacteria and the, the Hollywood reference of this is the whole dinosaur. Mm. So we're not bringing back a whole dinosaur, but bringing a very a, a essential component of this of this dinosaur by cloning it to a modern dinosaur today in some ways. Did you get to see how that bacteria that was made almost sick by the, the ancient DNA, how it, it evolved? Did it manage to evolve? And, and you know, does it change path each time it's it's rebooted? So uh, that's a very good question. And what we observed was that evolution recapitulated uh, and it a pathway that was different than the ancient adaptive pathway. So we've evolved this bacteria that is now a hybrid in parallel. Uh, we basically made multiple copies of the same bacteria and then wanted to observe the parallelism uh, across these bacteria and also compare it to the ancient history. And what we found is that even though bacteria seemed to adapt to this ancient component in a similar fashion repeatedly, it was different than uh, what happened in the past. But it also is important to keep in mind that we are not uh, maybe truly grasping the time that it is required to observe an, an adaptation that will resemble the ancient adaptive pathway. And we are currently working on this as well. What did you learn about evolution by essentially trying to recreate life? At a top level, it seems like evolution constantly reached to the same solution, at least for this bacterial system. Um, we found that uh, the same uh, solution, the same coping mechanism in response to this suboptimal uh, system, and in which that I mean the, the ancient um, component, the, the pressure that is introduced through the ancient component seems to be very identical in a repeated way. So evolution seems to be um, composed of a very narrow um, window of solutions that seems to be working for the organism and, right. and, and mutations are hitting to that spot over and over again. You said you, you have this ancient DNA in the bacteria and it sort of made it sick. And when it wanted to continue, evolution sort of had this limited set of options. But what sort of environment were you culturing that bacteria in it? Was it the same environment or, or anywhere close to the environment in which that ancient DNA would have lived? This is another great question. For for this system, it is difficult to recapitulate the past, given that we are working with a ribosome, with the ribosome that uh, doesn't really have a, a behavior that we can link to the environment directly. Mm. So, however, this system allowed us to uh, basically show that a modern organism can survive in the presence of an ancient sequence for the first time. We then have to concern ourselves with the question of how are we going to recapitulate the past in, in what system, in which system can we do that? So it needs to be a a DNA, an organism system that uh, has some tractable history in the geologic record, which is where we infer most of our in, in information about Earth's past environment. So with that, we switched the gears to another system that we are working on right now, uh, where we are where we re resurrected ancient uh, Rubisco proteins. These are not ribosomal proteins, but the proteins that we think were very essential for the oxygen on our, for the presence of oxygen on our planet. Uh, so we are focusing on a system that we think evolved around uh, 
2.5 to 3 billion years old, carbon fixation and a photosynthesis system, and working on resurrecting an ancient photosynthesis system inside a different bacteria this time, a cyanobacteria that also has evolved around 2.5 billion years ago. It seems to me that it's sort of um, a needle in a haystack sort of research, though, because you're, you're talking about a, an ecosystem within an ecosystem within an ecosystem. So, you know, the, obviously the bacteria itself is an ecosystem. The um, bacteria, it's um, in an environment, and then that environment is part of another ecosystem. And I wonder, is it possible to learn a lot from narrowing down on such a, a, a single interaction between ancient DNA and a very specific bacteria. Yeah, that's that's a that's a very very fair point, and this is why we uh, are focusing on Rubisco and cyanobacteria. It is fascinating for me. I have a I have background in biochemistry, so I do appreciate how events at the single molecule level can shape our Earth. I, I do uh, witness that, and it's it's really fantastic to to. Uh, that biology and biochemistry is capable of this because majority of the um, changes that we see that happened, at least uh, that we think happened uh, in the past comes down to an interaction at the protein level. Uh, I think it's a bit overlooked. On the other hand, geobiologists refer to single protein function when they want to predict what happened in the past. And Rubisco is one of these very essential proteins, not only because of, it is important for photosynthesis and carbon fixation, but it is also used as a, as a signature uh, in some ways in order to understand the past functions. So there are some proteins that can uh, be, that are held responsible for the changes that we observe at the ecosystems level. Not, not many, you're right, not many, but there are some, and Rubisco and, is one of them. It's been fascinating speaking with you. Um, thanks so much for joining us, Batul Kajar. Thank you very much for having me. Now it's time to look at some of your emails and texts from last week. Um, we were talking about drinking a glass a day. So Ruth Freeman from Science Foundation Ireland said that the people who drink just a small amount of wine... Um, well, are, are in hospital less than people who drink no glasses of wine. And then someone said, oh you know what, if you don't drink at all, it might be for medical reasons and that's why it might bump the curve and actually, you're right. These statistics can be problematic and you wonder sometimes, do you do you learn too much from them? But anyway, Andy in Sligo says, I'm on carer's allowance and treat myself to four cans of beer per week, obviously not affording to drink out all day. And at, out at all, sorry, not all day. Uh, that would be a bit excessive. Um, we were asking, you know, what do people do? Do people drink... You know, does anyone drink if you if you are a drinker? Does anyone drink as as little as one hundred and twenty five glass of wine and then just not have any more? Lots of people probably self report as drinking one small glass of wine. My question was, does anyone actually do that? And I suppose Andy, you would you would probably fall into that category. But had I, I mean, you, you say obviously not affording to drink out at all. Is that a a lim- there's the limiting factor there? Your income, because it sounds like it is. Would you otherwise drink more than that? I think the answer is probably. By the sounds of it, yes. Um, we also got a text in from Eamon uh, in Stilorgan. He says, irregular verb, I am a moderate drinker. You have a drink problem. He, she is an alcoholic. Um, I'm not quite sure what happened there. Uh, it sounds like someone was doing the declensions or something. I'm not, like, what? What? You must have made a grammatical error of some sort. Yeah. Shame yes. on you. So, um, did I? 
a moderate drinker. You have a drink problem. He, she is an alcoholic. I really don't know what that is about. I'm not sure, Eamon. I, you could still be drinking. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe you're correcting my grammar. Or maybe that's a haiku. I don't know. I really honestly don't know what's going on. I don't know what to do with that. Um, on the speed of evolution, we were talking about, uh, you know, how if you're older as a father, you pass on more mutations because you yourself and the sperm and the DNA in your sperm mutates over time and then you pass that on. So if you're 20 years old, you pass on 20 mutations or thereabouts. And if you're 50 years old as a dad or 60, you pass on up to 80 mutations, um, which is, isn't necessarily um, dangerous or bad, but it just um, it speeds up the level of mutation that happens and therefore could potentially speed up evolution. On a species level, uh, Lawrence said it's probably bad, but it's not necessarily bad for you as an individual yeah. or your kids. You could be lucky, you could be unlucky. Um, someone says, could the re increase in autism be uh, attributed to evolution? Uh, so the, CC, the CDC in the States, the Centre for Disease Control, um, on April 26th, uh, released its update on uh, how much autism um, they are recording. And the estimate sees like a 15% increase in prevalence nationally. One in 59 children to one in 68 in the two years previous, which seems to be a very high rate. Um, now, uh, prevalence estimates vary widely um, uh, between sites, and it's kind of a tricky one because autism wasn't diagnosed or, uh, or defined in the same way or hasn't been defined in the same way over the past number of decades. So uh, before you would have just, you, you know, like 100 years ago, they would have had awful terms for people with autism, but they certainly would have didn't, wouldn't have describe them as having this particular uh, condition. Uh, and now we are both categorizing behaviors and traits um, in a particular way. So our ability to um, perform cognitive skills in, in certain areas or uh, uh, understand emotion and so on, respond to stimuli. We're, we're kind of categorizing these things in different ways over the past 10 years. And one of the problems of the sort of the, I can't, I can't remember the exact word for it, but the sort of this, the psychiatrist handbook is that they changed the definition of something, what is it called? The manual, the DSM. The DSM. That they um, they changed the definitions of many um, many conditions over the the past two decades, which has been really unhelpful for trying to get a gauge on epidemiology of a condition, for example. We got a text in uh, on evolution saying there is not a shred of evidence to prove evolution. That's why it's still air quotes a theory. People like your phone guests make money in universities, etc., espousing the theory. Wow, this is like crank bingo. Um, but if we are, inverted commas, evolving, that's to say we are being refined and improved, then how is it we have brought the planet to the edge of extinction within the last 100 years from Kevin and Tipperary? Deep breath. Um, so there is an overwhelming amount of evidence for evolution. I, I don't know what more I can say on that. Ask anyone who works in science, which is looking at the knowledge we have. Um, the, the word theory is misattributed by the general public as a guess or a guesstimate because we use it for that in the English language, whereas in science, a theory is the best understanding that we have of the subject, but we update it all the time. Um, and that doesn't mean that we change it all the time. It's that we make it more specific all the time. And it's the more specificity that we do with a theory to give us a better understanding of exactly what happens. And that's what geneticists do. They add to the already well understood and well proven understanding that species evolve. It is extremely easy to show this in a very simple experiment where you get short living animals, you introduce a pressure on them and watch how they change. And there are 
hundreds of thousands of experiments that you can see live evolution happening, but also you can see it across many, many different species. Pretty much nobody doubts evolution, um, except some people uh, who text into the show every once in a while. And sometimes I think they're just trying to, to troll. Second thing, um, your, lo- your guests are trying to make money in university. Um, people in universities, they do get, um, they do, I think working in university can be a very nice life. There's no question of that. You can, you know, you get to work on something you're really passionate about. You get some, uh, you know, you get some time off during the summer to, you know, focus what you want to do. You get to travel and so on. It's a nice life. Um, if you take the PhD level um, uh, and beyond knowledge of somebody and put it into a commercial sector, the chances are that person will make a lot more money. And um, uh, if you take mathematicians and put them in a bank, for example, if you take biologists and put them in a pharmaceutical company, they tend to make a shitload more money. So the idea that these university professors are, you know, um, really rubbing their hands together, um, making up nonsense to, to get money is just, I think, a bit ridiculous. But maybe that's what they're telling me. This could go deeper. Um how, and then the last bit, how have we brought the planet to the edge of extinction within the last hundreds of years if we are so-called evolving? That's actually a pretty good question, Kevin, but maybe it's one for another podcast. Um, we were talking about urban animals and intelligence and how um, urban animals are, are adapting to these sort of pressures where we're building up and, and, uh, and, and habitats are being encroached on. And so acute little furry things, you need to find new ways of opening uh, spaghetti tins. Um one says, if raccoons can find easily in food easily in cities, would they then transfer their brain power energy to other less crucial but higher activities or processes, similar to the concept of Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Yeah. Okay, so I love this question, right? So Maslow, um, Abraham Maslow, uh, had this idea that if you if you look at all the needs of uh, of a human being uh, there are things that we fulfill and once they're fulfilled we move on to a higher need so if you take a, an animal and you put them in the wasteland their needs are physiological they need shelter they need food they need water once they have those things uh, they can step up and start thinking about okay I, how about i have long term security how about i build a hut that will keep me sheltered forever how about i uh, build a nut store so that i will have enough food for the next winter and i won't need to worry about that once they have those then they need uh, love and respect in their community. Uh, beyond that, um, they have uh, you know uh, money and security and uh, admiration, love, and all these things go on. And at the very high, the apex of this is self fulfillment. This is um, when you have when you're lucky enough to fulfill all of your needs. Um, the one that that is that really drives us is being the person I ought to be. The the sort of order should the way the world should be. That that's the sort of the highest level. And so this is self-fulfillment of being the best father you could be or being the best, uh, being contributing, what my legacy is. And, and that's the highest level of, of, of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And the question here is, if raccoons get rid of that lower level, will they start thinking about respect and admiration amongst their peers? Funnily enough, I mean, that social stuff is, you know, they do, um, hierarchy does exist in, um, in all animal circles. Where you stand is really important. You know, silverback gorillas and the fights that they have to um, look after the family. Um, so, uh, you know, if, if that's gone and they don't need, they don't need uh, you know, food or shelter anymore, they, they get themselves really set up. The question is, will they start thinking, what sort of raccoon am I? What sort of raccoon do I want to be? 
self-help books by raccoons on the way. Um, that's it from us for this week. Aidan McKelvey was producing. Simon Keane was a broadcast assistant and researcher. And Jojo Cardozo and Peter Malloy were on sound. We'll be back very, very soon with more Future Proof stuff. What's on the, the next podcast, Aidan? He hasn't put it together, has he? I don't know. Got something to do. Uh, Thursday, Future Proof Gold, where we play some of our faves from the past nine years. Yeah, faves. Um, and then it's back to more Future Proof. It's a nonstop roller coaster of science. Hope you're enjoying the ride. Hold on tight. Until next time, stay curious.